3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boomerang people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners and custodians of this land upon which we live and work. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to other Indigenous Australians who may be in our audience or listening to this broadcast. We acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations people in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement and that sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and welcome to the first of Wednesday Breakfast's Summer Specials. I'm your host, Claudia, and I'm excited to be with you here this morning. How is everyone feeling? Perhaps you're just waking up or are you on your way to work? Or perhaps you're packing the school lunches and getting the kids out of bed while writing your to-do list for the day and trying to gulp down your coffee at the same time. Well, wherever you are and whatever you're doing, it's great that you're tuning in to listen, especially as we have a very special show for this morning. But before we launch right in, I wanted to do a shout out for my two wonderful colleagues. Ella and Alice have been up at the crack of dawn every Wednesday morning, bringing you the show live from the studio and doing a fantastic job. Thanks, guys, for hanging in there and being such great team players. I love working with you on Wednesday breakfast. So what have we got lined up for today? It's Wednesday, the 15th of December. 10 days to Christmas. This morning, we're going to take a listen to a hugely interesting conversation about the mental load. And what exactly is that, you might be asking? Well, that's what we're going to find out. A group of three sociologists from the University of Melbourne got together earlier this year to talk about the emotional workload involved in organising family life and why it is so incredibly challenging. They delved into what goes on in families to learn about who ends up with the thinking, organising, worrying and remembering part of running the show and how this played out during the pandemic. So stay tuned for this super duper special. We're going to take our time to share as much of the discussion as possible and I'll be chiming in and out with updates and cheerios to see how you're enjoying it. But before we start, here's a song to kick off the show. Far Away by Wolf J.
And that was Far Away by Wolf J. You're back listening to Wednesday Breakfast on 3CR. Now we're going to hear from three experts from the University of Melbourne, Leah Rupiner, Liz Dean and Brendan Churchill. These three sociologists came together early this year to talk about the mental load, the invisible, enduring and boundaryless work impacting women, men, families and society. A little about these three speakers. Leah Rupiner is Associate Professor of Sociology and Co-Director of the Policy Lab at University of Melbourne. Dr Liz Dean is a lecturer in sociology and the director of the sociology undergraduate and honours discipline. And Dr Brendan Churchill is a research fellow in the Melbourne Graduate School of Education and program manager of Life Patterns. The discussion is hosted by Professor Dan Woodman from the School of Social and Political Sciences at the University of Melbourne. So you're going to hear a few voices throughout the program but I'll be helping out with some signposting to make sense of who's speaking. This discussion was part of the Critical Issues webinar series hosted by the University of Melbourne School of Social and Political Sciences, organised by Jenny Lee. And a big thank you both to the School of Social and Political Sciences and Jenny for kindly agreeing to share the audio recording with us so we can share it with our listeners. So we're going to dip right into the mental load. We're going to start at the beginning where we hear about a French comic strip that triggered a global response among those at the helm of family households. Dr. Liz Dean speaks. The beginning for us of the mental load as a discussion between the three of us came as a response to an incredibly popular so-called feminist cartoon done by a French cartoonist called Emma, who articulated, I think, an experience many young women were surprised to feel. And it was this cartoon, she shows a young man who is her partner entertaining a guest while she's feeding sleepy children, cooking the dinner for said guest and partner. And his uh, response to the kind of chaos in the kitchen is, as you can see here, what did you do? It's a disaster. And her frustration boils over by uh, responding, I did everything, that's what I did. And then she goes on, Emma, to show us, well, you could have asked me, um, in a sense, you're responsible for not asking me to help you. And in this, we could have alleviated uh, your multitasking. And in some ways, Emma concludes by saying um, what our partners in heteronormative relationships, and I know there's many different family forms and many different ways uh, gender shares uh, domestic uh, life. But what they're really saying is that they refuse to take on the share of the mental load. Um, you need to tell me what you need help with and then I will proceed to help you, for example. So what was interesting about this for us all is why was it, why did this cartoon go viral? It's now a book. It was first um, in the Australian media in The Guardian in May 26th. And it's still a discussion as these comments um, that Brendan uh, found for us show that it's still um, what are the multiple dimensions of the mental load that's been exacerbated by both 
COVID-19, for example, but also um, lockdown, the effects of COVID-19 and its sheer invisibility or in another way, why has it become a kind of invisible gendered load if it is and what does it mean? So, and again, I, well, I'm just going to mention these terms because this is what we'll start to talk about. But if we think about what the mental load is, it's often, as this cartoon has uh, depicted, uh, related to cognition, to the, the thinking, planning, scheduling of family life and everybody's place within um, a family. So it's in a sense, it derives from caring for families, caring about families, care of families. And it can be, of course, simply cognitive. But we also want to talk about, we're thinking about how this always already relates to the emotional. So it can be a form of emotional labour if we think about that as thinking and feeling work. So we wanted to explore what that meant. What does it mean to think about the mental load as either at times cognitive labour and at other times emotional labour? So in that sense, this led us to start to explore the invisible, in a sense, is the most obvious. But then we were starting to think how it becomes boundaryless. It starts to slip into every other element of many women, but not only women's lives, and how it can endure. In a sense, it's, it's always additional. It can't be completed in a sets of tasks and jobs or uh, emotional care and so on. So look, I'm purposely being incredibly brief, but that's enough from me just to sort of frame where we're going today. And thanks, Dan. Thank you, Liz, for that brief introduction. And welcome back, Leah and Brendan as well. So uh, I, have, I have a few questions. How, how is mental load maybe different or similar to those other kind of labour and chores that that are gendered in various ways in our relationships and households? Um, this is a good question, Dan. So I have studied inequality and divisions of household labor for 18 years now. Um, every time I say that, I make it longer, 19 years, 20 years, 25 years. Uh, and one of the things that's really critical about labor is we often think about later labor in terms of the visible things, in terms of the things that we can see and the things that produce products. So unpaid work in the home, things like housework or childcare, doing the dishes, you can see the ways in which these things get done. You know when the dishes pile up. You know when the laundry needs to be done. And in this regard, this is kind of capturing that visibility component, that this type of work is both visible to other people, but also visible in terms of its completion. So you can have something where, you know, um, you can complete a task and therefore that task gets checked off your list ticked off your list. And what's interesting is that housework is often explained through kind of three core theoretical perspectives. The first is talking about, look, we only have a certain amount of time in a day. You have 24 hours in a day. You cannot create more time, right? That's like just a fact. Time is finite. And so if you spend five minutes doing the dishes, that means five less or fewer minutes for time in leisure or time in employment or time in other activities, right? And so we think about this being both time bound and also um, like you can visible. We also think about housework as being tied to resources so you can outsource. So one of the ways to give yourself more time is you pay people to do the housework. So you can outsource your laundry, you can order in Uber Eats to reduce your cooking. You can outsource some of this and people with more money tend to be able to do better in that. 
And so the challenge is when you try to take these kind of conceptualizations of unpaid work, it's really hard to bring those across to the mental load because you actually cannot see the mental load. So Dan Woodman, at this moment in time, could be thinking about, as I'm talking, when are the kids coming home? How long is this going to go? When is there going to be a break? Oh, God, um, what do I have to do tomorrow to make sure my kid gets off to school? So you can be simultaneously doing the mental load at this moment in time without any of us knowing that. And in that regard, the mental load is invisible, right? So we don't see when people are doing it. We don't know the true volume that people are doing it. You can do it on top of additional activities. So you can be doing it while simultaneously engaged in employment. You can be doing it while you're doing the dishes. You can be brought up at night because you have a mental load worry. And so this is where we kind of got stuck in thinking about this and that we know we're really good as social scientists at measuring the physical stuff. I could tell you how many hours a day you've probably been at work. You could use a time diary and fill it out and give us your exact time. But if I said to you, how much time do you spend on the mental load? When do you do it? How do you do it? Where are you when you're doing it? What do you think about? It'd probably be pretty hard for you to do that and or it might sit across your entire day. And so this is the way in which we're really trying to unpack what that means and understand what it means in the context of a well-established literature about housework, a well-established literature about childcare, and the less well-established literature about mental load specifically. Brendan, or Liz, is there anything you would add about how, how this kind of work is, is different to those other labors we undertake? Um, Dan, thank you um, for introducing us and hello everyone. And um, the other bit about it, which Liz talked about in those first few slides, which were excellent, is that it has an emotional element. Many of us can make a list or we can think about things that we've got to do. You know, I've got to get bread, you know, by the time I leave work and get home or I've got to, you know, pick up the dry cleaning. But uh, the mental load has an emotional element, emotional domain, and that comes back to that caring for and caring for others. So when it involves um, another family member, like a wife or a partner or a child, it brings on this kind of emotional element, and that's actually what makes it um, what makes it a load, what makes it quite stressful because it's something that you need to do for something else. You know, while you're at work, you're worried about how you might pick up the kids. You know, if you don't pick up the kids, they're going to be stranded. And, you know, that's the, and, and, and parents often do that. I mean, I could recount to you how many times my parents forgot to pick me up. I'm not quite sure if they would have conceptualised this as the mental load, um, but it is something that happens. It has this emotional element or domain. It's, it's just more than list making. You've all kind of touched already a few times, but I wanted to, to push you to say a little bit more about what it is that, that makes this type of work, this type of labour, so stressful. The, you, you've kind of touched on this kind of really emotional affect behind this, but, but what is it in particular that makes the mental load work so stressful? And I answer that because I wanted to get, and I answer that. Um, there's two reasons. One is that it's never done. And two is that it doesn't sit within a space. So it's never bound. Um, so it's not like, you cannot bring your dishes to work. If you have dishes at home, um, you cannot bring them to work to do them, right? That's impossible. If you have laundry, you don't bring it to work and do your laundry at work. 
Um, so that is bound to a physical space. You can increasingly bring your work home, right? So we talk about work to family interference, uh, but even that sometimes can be bound if your phone's off, your computer's off. The reason why the mental load is so draining emotionally is that it's, it's not bound in space or place and it's highly gendered. So Dan, you said something earlier where you said, oh, you know, the things that might wake me up at night is like, I'm worried about my lecture. Am I gonna miss my lecture? So everyone is carrying some anxiety or stress within their brains, right? But it's, it's that if men are, are always thinking about or more often thinking about things that are happening for their work, they're planning for it, their, um, th their mental energy when they're home is preparing for the next day's work. But women's energy is about thinking about the family that that is deteriorating, right? We know that actually carrying long-term minimal stress is the most detrimental for your health. It's like, a, it's like leaving your battery on and slowly, slowly burning it down. But the difference would be, where do we spend our cognitive time? If we have additional cognitive time, where does it go? And if for men it goes to work, thoughts, and planning, and thinking, preparing, that's beneficial for your careers, right? But if women are thinking about, um, family stuff and making sure that's well managed, that is at the expense of other thoughts. And all of that is at ex the expense of recharging and leisure. And all of that is at the expense of productivity. So it's all a long drain. And that's why it's bad for mental health. That's why it's bad for physical health, sleep. That's why it's, you know, relates to gender gaps in employment, pay raises, career progressions. So there's long-term intersections about this mental load. Brendan? Uh, I would say what's really interesting about the mental load is, is that it's come to our attention um, as a kind of issue, a social issue to solve at a time in which women are, are expected to combine work and family and do it perfectly. So it's, it's kind of no surprise that, you know, we're seeing push from governments to get women into the workforce in huge numbers, but also this issue of the mental load. It, it, they go hand in hand. And I think, Leah, you've talked about this in previous work as well. Women are great at multitasking, you know, because there's this expect, well, <laughs> there's an expectation that women should be great at multitasking. Um, and, you know, I think women are forced to think about, you know, care and work, um, as you were saying. They, they, they're kind of, um, they've got to be, you know, available to think about this stuff. And, you know, uh, men typically haven't had this responsibility. Um, so uh, that is um, that is the emotional part. They could be at work and thinking about uh, children, um, you know, and it's often them that have got to leave work at three o'clock to do the pickup. And I mean, that's stressful as well. It's not just being at home, but it's also being in the workplace. It's the meshing of the two. So women are actually no better at multitasking. Brendan told you a lie. They're <laughs> no better at multitasking. Actually, no one can it's, multitask. It's so, and, and multitasking fragments your energy, one. And then the other thing related to this is under COVID, we, we showed that, you know, Australian men picked up, similar to Brendan, held more housework and childcare over time. But the consequence was that was that they reported worse sleep and greater anxiety. So the minute men are in the same role as women are in, where they're managing career loss and their kids being there, their health suffers, right? So when they're trapped in the home, so this this is why the mental load, well, I'm just talking right now about the physical labor, right? And that, imagine adding on top of that all of that thinking work. And so that's where we're already showing with the physical labor, it deteriorates your health and well-being, add the mental piece. Um, sorry, Lizzie. 
No, no, I was just going to take us back to some earlier studies too, um, Parental Consciousness and Gender by Walser, where she she was looking at very early parenting within heterosexual relations and showing immediately that rise of consciousness of an awareness of that I mentioned before of when to make immunisations, when to make appointments, when Jimmy needed to, you know, go to swimming, whatever it is, you know. So we, we got that. And then there's a more recent study by Offer in 2014 where she was measuring what she called domain crossing between work and the home, or um, some people call spillover. And she, she was showing how it's not that men weren't thinking about their families, but they, it didn't kind of interrupt their work in the same way. And they were more stressed. Walsh talks about this as well and offer. They were almost stressed, more stressed about the sort of uh, interruptions to the more important work, which was paid employment. So it's that invisible element, dare I say something like a, an old Marxist feminist, but that invisible labour of the reproduction of care and the kind of work we do for so-called love um, you know, that becomes that sustaining of a consciousness and awareness of. Now, that doesn't mean that all women do that and that men don't do it, but it's what the research tells us about that um, in terms of who actually does fulfil those roles. And that's the encroachment and the endlessness and the boundarylessness of that invisible sort of labour. And if you've just tuned in, you're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, 8.55am on the dial. We're hearing a discussion on the mental load, the invisible emotional and cognitive load of running a family and household. I'm sure there are many listeners out there this morning that can relate to this subject, especially at this time of the year. We've heard from three speakers, Dr Liz Dean, Leah Rupiner, Dr. Brendan Churchill, as well as host Professor Dan Woodman, all from the University of Melbourne. They've talked about what the mental load is and why it is such a stressful part of raising families. And inevitably, the conversation intersects heavily with gender. Women are largely picking up the cognitive and emotional work of managing families. And we're going to hear more on this, as well as the impact of the pandemic on division of labour. So here's Liz Dean again. There's something really interesting, and it's hard not to sort of return in some ways to the, uh, so within a heteronormative family anyway, the social reproduction of gendered labours, because um, some of the literature tells us that it's women more generally with children who sustain an awareness of and a consciousness of child's needs. And it's precisely this that kind of is that shift between or that shuttling between cognitive and emotional labour. And if we're thinking of Ali Russell Hosschild's work on um, cognitive labour, sorry, um, emotional labour, we're thinking about the feeling and thinking work that pertains to the care of the family. And I mean, she's not arguing and neither are we that uh, heterosexual men are less caring of the family, but it's what they see, as Leah was talking about, uh, what they kind of are ex a certain social expectation. And while those norms, social expectations of gender within a heteronormative family have changed over time, there's still often the mum that gets rung when suddenly the child can't be picked up by auntie or grandpa um, who suddenly has to either, you know, so or the mum who's 
shuttling the children around at the end of a rally, uh, knowing full well that they need to eat and that they're just about to crack it. And um, dad's kind of oblivious chanting, save the world. So it's this sort of, we see examples of these things all the time. And so in this sense, it speaks to both that shuttling from a real kind of the stresses that are mounting. We've all seen the harrowed the image of the harried women, you know, the, you know, I did everything, that's what I did, which women sustain an awareness of that dad can kind of not even see. The discussion was making me think about what was it like for this mental load, this, this COVID pandemic and the way we dealt with it in, in, in Melbourne and Australia with lockdowns and homeschooling and other things? Do you think COVID increase the, the mental load or did in some ways it also take some of the pressure off? Leah, I saw you shaking your head, so maybe we'll go to you first there again. Um, I'll ask Brendan too, because we were, so we collected data under COVID. We didn't collect it on the mental load, but we had did collect data under COVID. And um, what was clear was that women stepped up into the domestic work, that yes, men did increase their shares. So I, we have data, Brendan I know has data as well, but we have data in the US and Australia capturing people in May and September. So at the height of the beginning, and then again on that second wave of lockdown in September in 2020, and we're going to go back into the field this year to get a full year's worth of data on people. Um, and what was clear was that yes, men did pick up more. Australian fathers carried more housework for longer periods of time, but they did not, sorry, but the question is whether that maintains. They didn't do more than mothers, one. And um, also in the US, they reverted back to kind of traditional divisions. So it was short-lived. Australians held it longer, but we also had that second lockdown that really put everyone at home. Some of the parents really did like less of that running around. So I think what you're talking about is part of that busyness. And part of that busyness is carried around the mental load of the planning, organizing, making sure we're making the transitions. And the parents were saying under COVID, they did like some of that um, reduction. So in theory, we did ask questions about the mental load for the interviews. Um, but what we, what I think is missing, what I think is distinct about the mental load is that you're not just worrying about right now. So you're not worrying about, do the kids have, um, you know, is everyone eating or, or meeting the immediate needs? There's also worry about people's future. So the mental load sits around anxiety, around labor or outcomes that sit 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago. And you can never know actually if you did the right thing because there's no counterfactual. So, so um, Melissa Milkey talks about safeguarding kids' futures. The parents not only have to worry about whether their kids are safe, you know, that they are not going to be hit by a car or in the immediate future, but they also have to worry about whether they're preparing them for a global financial crisis, whether as we know that uh, earnings to men and women have declined, you know, how is my kid going to be competitive when we know gig economy work is raising and unemployment rates are high? And how do I position my kid to be prepared for the future? Um, and that is a lot of mental energy. And you never know if you've got it right. It doesn't end. There's no list. So Brendan was talking about that cognitive work, right? Like I had, you know, checking things off the list. How do you check off the list securing my child's future? Never happens. And it's enduring. It'll it'll continue to haunt you probably forever. So this idea that this is a rebalance into gender roles is was not borne out in the data, clearly not evidenced. And I think that additional layer of kids out of school, kids out of daycare, kids out of their schedules, kids out of their routines, kids not seeing friends, 
that adds this layer of emotional worry that I think amplified the mental load under the pandemic. So we collected data under COVID. We didn't collect it on the mental load, but we had, did collect data under COVID. And um, what was clear was that women stepped up into the domestic work, that yes, men did increase their shares. So I, we have data, Brendan I know has data as well, but we have data in the US and Australia capturing people in May and September. So at the height of the beginning, and then again on that second wave of lockdown in September in 2020, and we're gonna go back into the field this year to get a full year's worth of data on people. Um, and what was clear was that yes, men did pick up more, Australian fathers carried more housework for longer periods of time, but they did not, sorry, but the question is whether that maintains, they didn't do more than mothers, one. And um, also in the US, they reverted back to kind of traditional divisions. So it was short-lived. Australians held it longer, but we also had that second lockdown that really put everyone at home. Some of the parents really did like less of that running around. So I think what you're talking about is part of that busyness and part of that busyness is carried around the mental load of the planning, organizing, making sure we're making the transitions. And the parents were saying under COVID, they did like some of that um, reduction. So in theory, we did ask questions about the mental load for the interviews. Um, but what, we, what I think is missing, what I think is distinct about the mental load is that you're not just worrying about right now. So you're not worrying about, do the kids have, um, you know, is everyone eating or, or meeting the immediate needs? There's also worry about people's future. So the mental load sits around anxiety, around labor or outcomes that sit five, 10, 15, 20 years ago. And you can never know actually if you did the right thing because there's no counterfactual. So, so um, Melissa Milkey talks about safeguarding kids' futures. That parents not only have to worry about whether their kids are safe, you know, that they are not going to be hit by a car or in the immediate future, but they also have to worry about whether they're preparing them for a global financial crisis, whether, as we know, that uh, earnings to men and women have declined, you know, how is my kid going to be competitive when we know gig economy work is raising and unemployment rates are high, and how do I position my kid to be prepared for the future. Um, and that is a lot of mental energy and you never know if you've got it right. It doesn't end. There's no list. So Brendan was talking about that cognitive work, right? Like I had, you know, checking things off the list. How do you check off the list securing my child's future? Never happens. And it's enduring. It'll, it'll continue to haunt you probably forever. So this idea that this is a rebalance into gender roles is, was not borne out in the data, clearly not evidenced. And I think that additional layer of kids out of school, kids out of daycare, kids out of their schedules, kids out of their routines, kids not seeing friends, that adds this layer of emotional worry that I think amplified the mental load under the pandemic. Um, like Leah, um, Lynn Craig and I collected some uh, Australian data which looked at um, how people spent their time uh, during lockdown. And we also surveyed participants in May and we found some really interesting results that kind of differed for different population groups. So for people in um, uh, heterosexual families, we found that yes, you know, women were doing more care and more housework. Men were also doing more care. And so they actually experienced um, kind of dissatisfaction with how tasks were divided because for many of these men, you know, they had to work from home, uh, they were kind of getting to experience what um, often mothers experience in trying to manage uh, work and family life. Um, so I think, you know, for them, perhaps they were experiencing, you know, 
the mental load in these ways, but we also found that for single for single mums, they actually were a lot less stressed and a lot less worried. And that's because, you know, it's only them, it's only one person and they're often uh, relying on other people. But when you're in lockdown and you're at home and you don't have to do the commute or you're not relying on a, another family member or childcare, which as many mums I'm sure are aware or many dads as well, I should say, in the audience, childcare can be really unpredictable, it can be costly, but the lockdown actually kind of reduced some of those burdens. And so I think for different groups, COVID and the pandemic may have operated in different ways and reduced the burden, but for some like dads, perhaps who may have not experienced it as much as they did before, um, it would have increased it. And we also did look at what happened in lesbian, gay and bisexual couples, which was a really interesting uh, facet of our data. Um, and we found that, you know, uh, lesbian mothers in particular became much more stressed during the pandemic. And part of the reason is, is that lesbian couples pride themselves on having very egalitarian relationships. You know, they're kind of resisting traditional gender norms, which kind of, you know, are typically uneven in heterosexual relationships. So they like to have that balance, but COVID actually made it impossible sometimes for them to keep that balance. Uh, some lesbian mothers had to keep working and have to leave the home. And so they actually got a bit more stressed because they couldn't do their fair share. They couldn't contribute equally as they used to. And so perhaps for those groups actually, uh, you know, the mental load or the burden of the mental load increased. But uh, it's, I think it's uneven is what I would say. Thank you, Brendan. Well, yes, thank you. So I just wanted to add to both um, Brendan and Leah's discussion and kind of flick back to your uh, having children tugging at your legs because I think we're also in that interesting intersection between or overlay of the invisible, enduring, and um, boundaryless notion of the mental load. It absolutely um, starts to uh, be heightened when it's collapsing of the public and private sphere, literally with lockdown. So we, you know, we already know that technology has participated in those sorts of um, collapses or many variations of that. But it's interesting to think about when we were literally, as Brendan and Leah were saying, working in the home, what that does to exacerbate the mental load because there's no not only is it this endless kind of emotional cognitive labour that can flip in and out in its boundarylessness, you never can complete the different tasks, but the additional layering of that is grandpa who's come to stay, you know, uh, shaving in the next room, which is cutting out your two hour Zoom lecture, or um, that happened. And, you know, these, these are, and, you know, you're politely turning everything off and pretending there's a leaf blower out your window and abusing grandfather. But it is that sort of idea that these are the, these are, and this is when it becomes stressful and anxiety provoking and physiological and, you know, really starts to have a huge impact on potentially health. Interesting hearing those familiar tropes of the harried mother. I'm sure there are many women listening this morning who can relate to feeling pulled between different tasks and the mental processing that goes on alongside that, especially at this time with Christmas coming and the stress of the school year ending. Only a couple of days to go, but uh, it can be absolutely back to back with uh, Kris Kringle's picnic lunches, 
farewells, packing up school bags and emptying school lockers and so forth. We're going to take a break now, a little bit of a breather in between the segments, but please don't go away. When we return, we're going to hear more from our experts on the mental load. They're going to talk about how the mental load has changed over generations and whether caring for a family is becoming more individualised and burdensome for today's carers.
Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching the new COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years, we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires, there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains, and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunakurnai and Bidwell and Monaro people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. Celebrate a family-friendly New Year's Eve in Yarra. Join us at Edinburgh Gardens North Fitzroy and Barclay Gardens in Richmond for kids' games, sports competitions, lighting installations, relaxed live music and an outdoor cinema. This free, family-friendly event kicks off at both parks at 12 midday. Bring a picnic and ring in the new year with family and friends. Check out the full program at yarracity.vic.gov.au. And remember, City of Yarra Park streets and public spaces are alcohol-free on New Year's Eve. The City of Yarra is a 3CR supporter. And that was Amy Hannon with Lion in My Heart, one of our favourites on 3CR. It's 15th of December 2021, 10 days before Christmas, and you're listening to a Wednesday breakfast summer special. I'm your host, Claudia. And if you've just tuned in, we've been hearing about the mental load of caring for families, what it is, who does it, and why it is so burdensome. This discussion is part of the University of Melbourne's School of Social and Political Science Critical Issues series. And we're delighted to be sharing it with you this morning. I think it's really interesting if you think about it in relation to the so-called post, this is not quite answering, but I'll get there, post-feminism and new feminisms. I think like on the one hand, we've kind of been sold a pup that, uh, you know, you can do whatever you like as a young woman. You can be free to choose your own path. You're a self-entrepreneur. You can, uh, you can have it all, the Nike tick. And then you might, have a a heterosexual partner and you might marry and suddenly the mental load starts to look a lot like the social reproduction of labour 
from yesteryear, but it's not just the, I think the major difference to articulate here is that it's not making visible simply the, uh, as Leah said, the, the work that's bound to place, the material work, it's all that, like, you know, the cooking, the cleaning, the packing the lunch, that it's sort of the knowing that there's food in the fridge for the lunch, knowing that um, the football is underneath the chair where young Leinster left it last month. Um, it's knowing all the, it's sort of holding on to all the apples. And, and sadly, um, this seems to be the work of Robinson in 2019, but also the work of Offers in 2014, which actually shows that heteronormative women anyway, despite the changing social uh, expectations of what it is to be a man or what it is that men should be doing around the home or in, within families, um, there is still this quite stubborn <laughs> immobile social reproduction of division of labour. I think to get back to your question about does it is it big families? You know, has things changed over time? Um, I mean, in some ways, actually, as I said, like it's no surprise that the mental load has become this problem when we're asking women you know, to combine work and family and do it successfully. But also something else has gone on and it's this idea of intensive mothering that, you know, we have to rear our children now to be the best that they can be and that often falls to the mother. And it's also an expectation that we have of fathers as well in pairing that we need to raise children to be... Um, athletes or virtuosos, you know, at the piano or that they have to be, you know, supremely talented um, in this kind of, uh, you know, neoliberal world that, you know, in order for them to exceed, succeed, we need to invest in them. And so there's a lot of demand on parents um, to do that in terms of rearing their children. And so that's an added pressure that perhaps previous generations didn't have before. Mothers weren't also necessarily expected to work um, and certainly when they had children in previous eras, you know, they tend to leave the labour market. So there, I think there are a couple of things that are going on that perhaps the mental load may uh, not have been as a significant thing, um, you know, but certainly it wasn't easy as well. There would have been greater demands on women to do a lot more of the domestic labour, um, of also, you know, no career opportunities as well, which is, you know, a sad thing. No, I agree with Brenda. I think it's like we've indiv individualized, institutionalized problems. So it's like, you know, like intensive mothering emerges in response to these kind of declining fortunes of kids and everybody else. And therefore, you're individually responsible for making sure your child can overcome globalization, rising income inequality. I mean, right, like fill in the blank. So that's therefore the pressure goes on the family. But I mean, we know that this is class based too, right? This is a, there's a, class-based in the, and this is white um, professional upper-class families, middle and upper-class families that are doing this work. And, and the, that's one of the things we actually talk about a little bit too, is the mental loads are, might be very different for um, people of color and different family forms. But Brendan and I do have a paper, actually, where we're looking at whether um, generational change has occurred in terms of housework time. And we're not finding, like, we are finding some movement, but not closing of the gender gaps. So, so this idea that, you know, are we that much different from then baby boomers a little bit, but not much. And so the domestic work still remains highly gendered and women still take a larger share. So we're not done. The work isn't done. Yeah. No, nothing hurts Generation X's and maybe even millennials like being told they're not actually different from the baby boomers. Leah. But that, and there's also, 
Can I just add to that too? I think that's one of the reasons why the mental load cartoon just went viral. It, it simply was the shock of recognising something that, that many young women never thought they would have imagined they'd find themselves within. I, yeah, it, it's interesting that that really resonated with the culture. And it, it made me think, Leah, you were talking about how this is individualised in a, in a way. It becomes kind of your problem to juggle all this stuff. And we've kind of got, got a sense of how it is a problem for, for individual people. Can, can I ask the panel to reflect or say a bit more on, I guess, why it's a problem more broadly? Why, why might this mental load be a, a collective problem or, or a problem more broadly for, for our society? Um, you know, mental health, like mental load equals poor mental health, poor, poor well-being. So it, it does actually have an impact. You know, it's stress and anxiety, feeling rushed, feeling time pressured all the time. It, it does lead to real outcomes, which is ultimately poorer over well-being. And also there's another aspect to it, which is um, if, if rearing families or rearing children and raising and being part of families is quite stressful, then it's a bit of a turn-off. Like no one wants to... Uh, feel the pressure of, you know, raising a family while combining work. So there might be this longer-term issue about social reproduction, you know, a, a, an unwillingness to have children. So you could actually link it to debates about population and fertility, actually, that um, it is quite stressful combining all of these things. And then if it is doing detrimental things to your health and well-being, perhaps you're not going to go down that pathway. Can I um, add in related to this? I mean, health 100%, but we have a, I have a paper with um, colleagues at University of Queensland using the HILDA data, so using the Australian panel. And what we show is that that transition into first births increases everyone's feelings of time pressure, feeling time pressed, time poor, um, but it's twice the effect for mothers than fathers, right? So it's, fathers go up, but it's double for mothers. And then when they transition into second births, it doubles again for mothers. And once we can explain for that increase in those feelings of time pressure when you have the first baby and then you have the second baby, that actually the mental health effect disappears. So it's not that mothers have poorer mental health because they have kids per se. It's that once they have these kids, they're carrying this greater time pressure and time burden relative to um, fathers at twice the rate of fathers. Um, another thing I just want to point out to Dan related to this is that um, I think one of the challenges around the mental load is because of its invisibility, it, it isn't kind of front and center. It's front and center on people's feelings, but we haven't really quantified it. So we actually worked with the New America Foundation and we tried to produce an experiment, this team, Brendan, um, Liz, and myself, where we gave people an activity we kind of introduced you to the mental load it's there it's available it's free asking people within their own families to try this little activity to see and quantify the mental load um we ask you to get money we ask you to sit down and talk as a group count out your mental loads each and every day but just as a way to take this invisible work that's often done internally and try to make it visible i'll drop it in the chat but that might be something that's useful just as a first step, because I think for many of us, we're, this is kind of a new concept or you're not thinking about it or, you know, we know about the dishes and laundry and picking up kids from after school, but what about this mental health? So I'll drop that in right now. There's, a, there's another interesting element, which, which um, 
moves off that and I haven't gone very far with this, but I've been looking at 900 comments of blogs and different forms of social media. And in that you get a lot of solutions to make it visible, to make it something that people are aware of. And it's fascinating. All the solutions actually build the mental load of the women, like within the comments. It's women saying, okay, so you need to make a mind map or you need to get a calendar or diarise or put it on the fridge or, you know, so in their desire to make it visible, it becomes another sort of form of that, another task, if you like. You're listening to Summer Programming on 3CR. And if you've just tuned in, we've been hearing about the mental load of caring for families, what it is, who does it, and why it is so burdensome. This discussion is part of the University of Melbourne's School of Social and Political Science Critical Issues series, and we're delighted to be sharing it with you this morning. We're going to pick up the conversation again now as the panel speculates on the future Will the mental load continue to burden families of the next generation or will something change? Now, now you've already kind of started in this direction and in, in some ways it's always a, a, a trap for sociologists to do this. But I, I'd like to ask you all to kind of speculate on what, what it might mean in 20 or 30 years for people, whether they're whether they're parents or not, but, but for, for parents, for, for people, parents, our families and society, if we don't do anything about this, if we, if we kind of continue on this trajectory of increasing mental load, what's it, what's it, going, to, what's it going to mean? Um, I'll start and then uh, see if anyone picks up the line I'm about to throw down. Um, the care crisis is coming, full stop, period. So the mental load is only going to, the caregiving demands on people are only going to increase as our aging populations age and need care. So there is going to be an increasing crisis that will come no matter what, just based on demographics. What that means for women still remains an open question. What that means for economies, how we meet those demands, who meets those demands and who doesn't. I know the new budget um, now, the idea is that uh, aged care will happen in the home, not not outside of the home, what that means for women, mothers, children, daughters um, is an open question and what that means for the mental load. So one answer would be we do nothing. The care crisis comes, it, women assume the um, bulk of that. They drop out of employment because they can't do it all. And then we have less fragmented mental loads but they'll stay as they are or because we know that people can't earn as much, they'll carry on both and it'll just intensify. Uh, you'll see higher rates of burnout, um, mental health issues, crisis. Uh, and so you'll have this these things happening simultaneously. A growth in a mental health crisis, which we see some indication of that under COVID, right? Growing mental health issues alongside growing caregiving issues, alongside economic declines. Anybody want to guess on, take that or not? We can take the other, um, we can take another sliding door perhaps and kind of uh, see what it might be like if, 
those things aren't realised. And if we start with recognising care as important social infrastructure, um, it's not thought of in that way. It's thought of as gendered work that typically falls on women. But if we see it as a vital social infrastructure and we build policies and programs around that and we implement them now, then we can kind of mediate, temper ageing populations, the pressure on sandwich generations, the pressure on future generations that are being born right now. Um, but that has to start now and we have to invest in that. We have to make sure that aged care is funded properly, that disability care is funded, uh, that childcare is appropriately funded. It is available, it is free, it's universal. Um, those things will take the pressure off families and in particular take the pressure off women at the moment. Uh, we saw during COVID that uh, dads, fathers can take on this work it will be really interesting to see when Leah does her survey again or next year when we run a, a few more data points to see, you know, how much things have really shifted in the home where the men are continuing to do more because that's also a first step, getting them to do more because that takes the burden off women. Uh, those are uh, things that need to happen in the immediacy, but if we do kind of start seeing the importance of care and treating care as, you know, vital infrastructure, you know, then we can avoid that future that Leah talks about, which is uh, quite depressing. Liz, uh, Brendan's kind of started to jump on to my next question, which was about what can we do about it so we don't end up in that position. But, but if there's anything you want to say about where we might end up, but also anything you would add about what kind of things could we do so we, we don't end up in that situation. Yeah, I mean, the care deficit, and, and they're here too, we have to really contextualise it with um, who does, you know, the global care chains, who does the care, who does the bulk of the care when policymakers refuse to properly fund care arenas or, uh, you know, so both Brendan and uh, Leah have talked to that. But what I'm really interested in is unless we start unless we can expose the invisibility and the gendered nature of this, although as, a, as we can, it can be shared and it can be differentiated, I think um, it's the fact that it's always sort of seen as a kind of a personal and an individual thing. It's interesting in a lot of the comments, people, particularly men actually, were saying, well, this is women's responsibility. Their standards are too high. They're, we don't know what to do because they always, we don't do it right. But it's that kind of individualising processes of the mental load in its invisibility, boundlessness and endlessness and all its tasks, cognitive and emotional, which then turns it back onto whoever it is that sort of is carrying it through the narrative of resilience, you know, that you have to you know, you, ha you have to change your behaviour. So it, it seems to pivot on the necessity to make it visible, who, who's doing it or carrying the most of it, make that visible. <laughs> and then we have to start to push back, I think, beyond a kind of an individual lens towards a policy lens, which can start to address and make real structural in, uh, changes in order to stop this, if you like, social reproductions of inequalities. So, so is all there or Brendan, how do we how do we do that? How do we make the policymakers start to, to add in this in, in some ways complex area of, of less visible work and labor that's being unequally um, 
the, the burden of it's being unequally felt and carried by different people. So how do we make policymakers do that? We need to start quantifying it in the first instance, you know, so we need to make sure that, you know, our surveys that we uh, disseminate here at the university, but also the ABS, we need to make sure that they count it and include it because you can't solve a problem if you don't have numbers. Numbers are very powerful, he says, as the quantitative social scientist, Um, you know, we need to have an evidence base. Um, to say, you know, this is how much, this is who. Uh, Leah, Liz and I are starting to do some of that work, but it's still in its infancy. So our first kind of uh, port of call is to, you know, gather evidence. We know, we know how, uh, we know anecdotally, uh, we know the media tension. We also know through our own experiences uh, what a problem this is, but we do need evidence. I agree with that. Can I add, I, mean, I talk about these issues a lot too, so I just want to give my usual spiel a little bit too, that um, when we talk about this, we've grounded it in, in women, right? We talk about women a lot throughout this and mothers throughout because the empirical evidence shows that mothers carry the bulk of this work, right? The bulk of their domestic work at the expense of their careers. However, there's another body of evidence that shows that actually men want to be a part of the family in new and dynamic ways, that there is a generational shift that's happening whereby men want to engage, they want to share the domestic work, they want to be active parents. So Dan, you showed us your background, right? It's like, this is kind of the new fatherhood where men want to be a part of it. Where there is a rub is the institutions haven't kind of shifted towards inclusivity around this, that men still expect to see and experience a penalty. Um, for their caregiving roles, for reducing work time to part-time, for taking, really, it's really reducing work to part-time, stepping out of their careers and not seeming like they're the ideal workers at work. Um, And so that is where, if you don't address that, that what we think of as the ideal worker is kind of a 40-hour or 60-hour-a-week person, and that that's assumed based on this idea that, you know, that, that, Someone's there doing everything at home, uninterrupted, undivided time. But if you don't tackle that, how do you then get anyone to pick up the mental load? Because the mental load's hard. Yeah. It's draining. It's emotional. And so one is visibility, like Brendan said, you need an empirical base because we've talked about associations, but we don't have the data, to, you know, we need data to show it. And the second is how do you get men to step into the work? The work they want to do, but to get them to step in. And that's sometimes about institutions. Sometimes it's about norms, like Lizzie said, like, you know, standards. Although I'll show you, we have a study that shows that actually women, we men can see mess just as much as women can. We've shown it empirically. But if the woman has a messy room, they're seen as less confident, less capable, less hardworking. So there's social consequences for women for mess, for, for leaving the kids at school on accident versus the dad. The, the consequences of that are different. There's a double standard. It's really interesting because I think about how I do show show my students some of the mess in the study when I'm making points about things in a way that maybe maybe some of my my colleagues of, of a different gender to me may not. But um, yeah, it also reminds me about how good I've got in the in the last year at knowing which camera angles to set up my camera on on my computer so it hides all the washing in the corner and and the mess and other things. And just before we turn to questions, I had one follow-up on that, that policy question where I was was thinking about, you know, different shades of government and what the policy solution has often been recently. And 
You've already talked about some of the complexities that might make this hard, but is there going to be a kind of turn to the market and market solutions? Because I think about the way that other household labor tasks that people with money and, you know, there's a class dimension to this have paid working class women, immigrant women to come in and, and do work for them that allows them to, it's not easy, but to have that dual career and, and those kind of things. Is there any chance that people will turn to the market to manage mental load? Is that one of the things that, that nannies and, and others and, and personal assistant types will be, be asked to do more for, for people with the resources in the future? I think we're seeing some of that perhaps not in, uh, but perhaps like in terms of technology, like Dan, you mentioned, uh, you know, particular apps that you can do scheduling with. And I definitely think that you could see that as a future growth stream for some savvy, you know, Silicon Valley people to, you know, an app to help you manage your mental load. But, you know, we kind of know uh, from the history books uh, that, you know, many people thought that technology as in the washing machine, the oven and lots of, you know, gadgets for the home were going to improve women's lives and they were going to make it easier. You know, and the same could be said for nannies and housekeepers, but actually all that does is it, it makes more work, but it's just a different type of work because you need to manage the technology or manage the staff. So um, it's possible it might relieve the burden for some, but it just becomes another form of work which may actually exacerbate the mental load in some ways. I mean, that's what I think at least. And there's also the, the, the aspect of the mental load that is interiorised, that's the thinking and feeling work that simply cannot be outsourced anywhere, really. So um, the task elements of it possibly can be, but to actually, what, what do you do with all that kind of um, escalating intensive motherhood and parenting and fatherhood that Leah and Brendan were talking to earlier? How, you know, with increasing pressures and lives being economised and therefore you having to kind of create the greatest future for your children or whatever it is, or whatever the worries is, it could be um, you can't outsource the mental uh, burden of um, increasing underemployment, increasing casualisation, like all the things that exacerbate the mental load. These are lived experiences of... That, that have no service provision. There's many great loves in history that we know about. Better take the two lovers that was told to me. Make me wanna scream and shout. Romeo and Juliet A love story You won't forget Tell me why, tell me why Did they destroy a love like that Tell me why, tell me why Tell me why did they do that Snowball Roach and Allie Austin Said they loved each other well Oh and I don't think That they argued often Somebody broke the spell Yeah, they broke the spell And broke their heart Then they drifted Far apart Tell me why, tell me why Did they destroy your love like 
you're back listening to Wednesday Breakfast. That was Misha Bear with Playground of Youth and before that you heard Archie Roach with Tell Me Why. We're going to hear now our last segment of the morning's special on the mental load. I hope you are enjoying listening to this in-depth discussion. Such an essential but intense part of family life and one that needs to be acknowledged and validated can often cause a lot of umbrage in relationships. Who does what? Who does more? I'm sure there are listeners out there who know how that conversation goes, but hopefully hearing this discussion will provide some new ways of talking about this subject and putting it into a more neutral space, the importance of caring, is something that's universal and uh, we all want our close family members to be cared for and loved ones. So what frameworks can we use to better understand the mental load and its impact? Are there other countries which better manage the emotional labour of caregiving? The panel considers the intersectional nature of care, health and economics, as well as the social value of care in Australian society. Is there lessons from any other countries where they, they might be doing some things that help in this area that we can learn from? An obvious um, response is the fact that there's proper paid parental leave that men have to take. And so in that sense, they would be participating in the care for the family in potentially more equal measures. That, that would be one. This is where like the evidence base is thin, so we don't we don't know. But I, I like related to what Liz said, there is um, from Sweden because we love to talk about how we all want to be Sweden. Um, that there is research that shows from colleagues at Stockholm University that when parents, uh, you know, when they mandated the parental leave, that fathers who take that parental leave at the beginning and have that intensive time with their kids that they are more likely to do more housework and childcare over the duration, that when kids are hurt, they're equally likely to go to either parent. I mean, so that will help equalize some of the, you know, kind of the default going to mother childcare. But I don't think we know whether the mental load is equalized by policies. And I think this goes back to the previous question about like, if it's just list making, then we would just, or Google calendar synergies, it would be solved. But it's because it's that combination of cognitive and emotional labor. So you're doing some of that work, thinking work, but with a layer of anxiety and worry about the quality of it. So you can outsource some of it, but you can't outsource the, the worry about how it's being done. One of the things we talk about a little bit too is what, what happens for women who are predominantly women of color um, doing caregiving work in their work. How does that mental load carry over when they come home? So how do we think about that caregiving both at home and caregiving at work and worrying about the quality of jobs or the quality of outcomes 
when that's part of your job as well. So that's another question. There's a, there's a few great questions that I'm actually going to bundle together, I think, and, and we can reflect on, on a few. Um, so, so related, you were talking about that evidence base, Leah. Is there, is there any evidence on what might get men to, to step up in terms of taking their fair share of the mental load? You've talked a little bit about some of those models. Um, and the, in the research study you've, you've done, was there enough evidence or, or were there some single dads in which we could learn something about the experience of single dads uh, last year? And, and maybe wrapping those all up together, one, one of the question, one, one of our audience asked too, if, if we miss anything, if, we're, if we mainly focus on quantitative research in this area. So, so there's a, a few things to reflect on there. I'm just going to respond to the quantitative, and I think you're talking about love and whatever that might mean, but that can't be measured, the thinking and feeling. And yet I'm cynical enough, old enough to perhaps suggest that. What does that mean? And, 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 and I know there's literature on this and I, I'm not, I haven't gone there because I'm, I'm still feeling like Federici, who wrote the manifesto on the exploitation of love back in the 70s, you know. Um, so, yes, I suspect, as in much research, you can leave things out. But, but what I think is interesting in terms of solutions and how to get beyond it is that we still don't really know how people experience the mental load more generally to respond to that other question, to know how it is that men could take on more of it. And we have to be careful too, because I'm talking particularly here in heteronormative families, um, men do have mental loads. We don't know what their mental loads are, but the, you know, there's not a lot of work that looks specifically at this. They're just different. And in terms of the quantification, I think, uh, and I'm going to say this because I am, you know, a mostly quantitative researcher, um, it's only, and this kind of relates to a question that someone else in the Q&A mentioned about quantifying um, the mental load. Uh, you know, there's been this recent push by feminist economists and uh, those in uh, political economy to, you know, start calculating how many hours women spend on housework and, you know, how much that contributes to our GDP. And they're doing that because, you know, that is the only way to get other economists, and by other I mean male economists, who have the government's ear, um, who have so much sway over policy, to recognise the contributions women make. Uh, we all know that women make such a huge contribution. We've been fortunate enough to be raised by them. Some of us have partners who do this work, but really what gets policymakers' attention is when they can put a dollar figure on it. And so I think actually quantifying the mental load uh, is the first step in the same way that we're seeing this push to work out how much uh, domestic labour, housework and childcare contributes to the economy, quantifying the mental load is actually a form of productive work that, you know, does have some value to the economy because it is a form of work, it is labour. Um, so I think it's important to start there, not necessarily to uh, make sure that we don't think about the emotional experiences of it or the qualitative on the ground, um, uh, you know, meaning, but I do think it is important to uh, you know, have that starting point there. Now, there, there's, there's a couple of questions about 
what you would say, maybe what is the best way to frame this? Is it, is it primarily gender lens the way we are going to get through to policymakers or, or is it talking about this is, a, I guess, a problem for all of us is, is a summary of some of the questions here. And then, and then there's also a question about what frameworks could we draw on to make sense of this? You've, you've kind of made the case for this as something that's kind of under-researched, under-understood. Un, under what can we learn from some of the, the frameworks from feminist economics or, or, or elsewhere that might help us? get a grasp on what's going on with mental load and after that we'll probably have to start winding up. I'm going to answer that but not maybe the way the questions were intended to be answered. Um, as someone who sits in the space and is often talking about this in the public sphere a lot about unpaid work and all of this, uh, I think the most effective way to frame it kind of more broadly is thinking about that intersection of caregiving and health um, or that intersection of caregiving, health and economics. So one of the challenge, one of um, when you start to talk about parental leave or parents or married couples or heterosexual couples, it cleaves. All, all of a sudden, you have people who get something and others who don't. But if we think about this as a caregiving issue, if we think about um, a caregiving crisis coming, all of us at some point in our life will be called upon to care, either for parents, friends, family members, children, spouses, partners. So caregiving will sit across our lives for everyone. It will, you'll be called in at various points in time and out in various points in time. How do we create a system that is equitable to caregiving? So Brendan talked about caregiving as an infrastructure. We're starting to see this discussion post-COVID that caregiving, once you erase that infrastructure, you see all the work that's being done for free. And so if we start thinking about a caregiving infrastructure and the ways in which the absence of that has led to an incredible drain on productivity and health, but only for certain groups, right? Disproportionately for women, disproportionately for the poor, disproportionately for people of color, right? That this absence of a well-paid, effective caregiving structure is not about women, it's not about men, it's about caregiving, and it's about amplifying inequalities. So that's where I think is the most effective kind of political argument. Yeah, so, so Brendan and Liz, our frameworks and, and how to best position this and I've just noticed that flying to the top of our upvoted list of questions is one about what might happen in the case of divorce where there's there's shared care so Brendan and Liz if you I think um you know for post-separated parents um you know it's hard because parenting is hard and when you're down a spouse or down a par partner you know you're carrying the burden by yourself when you have another partner um, you know, you can share it. That doesn't mean that, you know, if you are a sole parent or a single parent, you can't share it with other people in your life, you know, family members. Uh, but I do think it's tough. Um, and, you know, more research needs to be done on that. But certainly in some of the research that I did, you know, during COVID, uh, you know, single parents, single mothers in particular, talked about the benefit um, of COVID because it meant they could stay home just with their children, you know, while working, but it took the, the pressure of not commuting, the pressure of not having to do school activities, you know, really helped their lives. Um, so I guess coming back to, you know, a wrap-up conclusion statement, Dan, is that, you know, when we do this research, you know, it can't be just thinking about the mental load, which some might argue is a very white middle-class thing. We need to think about how it affects particular groups, single mothers, gays, lesbians, single dads, uh, you know, 
dual learner couple parent. It, policy making, I think, falls over when it, you know, it tries for a, a one size fit all, um, you know, and that's sometimes not possible because of resources and constraints. But thinking about those particular groups or making sure it, it covers as many population groups as possible is good. Uh, look, I don't think I have anything much to add to that, Brendan and Leah and, and Dan, but I think um, it's how to kind of refocus a social value around care to push back to policy, but also to um, understand that until, which as we've said before, but until we understand the mental load in its all its differential impacts for various peoples as invisible, boundaryless and enduring, we and, and research that to quantify it, we won't be able to kind of even identify what it is and how it hits, how it creates stresses and emotional. And that was our last segment for this morning's special on the mental load. A big thanks to the School of Social and Political Science at the University of Melbourne for sharing this audio with us. There is so much to think about here and I'm very much looking forward to hearing more from this group. Um, it's great to hear them acknowledging that the research to date has mainly centred on white middle class experience and heteronormative families. Uh, we definitely look forward to their work expanding in a wide range of family and demographic settings and uh, hearing a diversity of voices uh, in the research in the future. Next week, Ella will be here hosting the program. So uh, please tune in then. And I'll be back in the new year with another summer special. So that's all from me this morning. Keep safe and well. And thank you for taking the time to listen to Wednesday Breakfast on 3CR. We're going to finish off today with a song from Shelley Morris. Saltwater people, enjoy.
3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. Have you heard of long COVID? If you or someone you know have had COVID-19, you may still experience symptoms weeks or months later. There are many symptoms of long COVID, but the most frequent are extreme tiredness, shortness of breath, and muscle aches and joint pains. Anyone can experience long COVID, including children. You can find information in your language on the Health Translations website, healthtranslations.vic.gov.au. Just type long COVID as a keyword. A 3CR supporter. Hi, I'm Munira from Fitzroy Primary School and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR.